Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Let me have you open Romans chapter 13 this morning, Romans chapter 13, and uh, I'm just going to share some things that I've had on my heart. We have, we, we have a pastor's fellowship here, we have a meeting, usually it's every single month, and this last month we had the meeting here at, at our church, we rotate to different churches in Smith Valley and here in, in, in town. And all we do is get together and pray, and uh, whoever's church it's at does a devotion, and then we talk about different subjects, if there's something going on like VBS and all, all those things, and try to coordinate it so our VBSs don't happen at the same time, because a lot of kids just like to go to every single VBS possible on, on, in, in, within the community and uh, do things like that. So at this last meeting, we, we had a, a really, really good meeting, just a really good time of prayer and uh, talked about uh, many things that we had on our heart and very interestingly enough, uh, quite interesting for me, there was a lot of uh, agreement and uh, not, not that we get in fights about things, but the, some of the subject matters were things that you might, you might not find agreement on with, with other people and it was really quite surprising to me and that's the second, second time that, that that's happened re- recently. And it's, it's a beautiful thing when you see agreement happening um, by the Holy Spirit um, between Charismatics, Baptists, Lutherans, different denominations, because everybody has their little things that they want to hold on to in life. And, and, and it's, it's hard for us to hold on uh, to our pride and, and have unity with other people, and yet you don't want to have unity at the expense of compromise, because then it's not really unity either. So I see God doing some things in our community um, that I, I think are promising. I think that, that have, have hope in them. And uh, what I hope is that what I can see on a very tiny small scale in our community, perhaps that's happening in communities all across America. Um, I don't know that, but you know how science works, you know, how they look in a microscope at something and they just see one, you know, if they see one little thing and one little slide that they took a biopsy or something, then they know that that, you know, is is on, on the bigger scale also, or they believe that it is, and they'll experiment and, and uh, uh, look further to, to find out what's going on. And, you know, because as a nation today, we are, I, I think, it, at least in my lifetime, which I'm 58 now, and from what I've studied about history, which I had to go to history class every year <laughs> in school, and I like history, I think we are more divided as a nation today than we ever have been in the history of our nation. And divided on racial lines, divided, but divided on moral lines, but we're just divided everywhere as a nation. And I'm not sure that that division as a nation 
I, I don't know, because I don't know when Jesus is coming back. And I know that these things are prophesied. I'm, I'm not sure that as a nation that the vision will, will ever be, be healed, will ever be fixed. You know, we already have in the history of our nation a, a, a horrible uh, civil war. And as a result of that civil war, the, 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 the nation was reunited. And, and uh, uh, you know, we're just, we're just at a place where we have things like protests in the streets. You know, I went to Portland, Oregon last year for my niece's wedding and I, could, I was quite, quite, a, quite a good deal of shock, the difference between the neighborhood where my sister lived then, they've moved to Florida since, and the center of Portland and what it, what it looks like. And um, you, know the kind, you know the kinds of things that have been going on now for several years and it's just escalating, it's getting worse and worse. And uh, that, that division doesn't bode well for the nation. But I wanna say that God has a plan for his church that we are a holy people, that we are a people chosen out uh, by, by the Lord. We are a royal priesthood. And the scripture is very clear that our citizenship is in heaven. And our first allegiance is always to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I believe that revival, um, the way that God sees revival, is really when we as the church separate ourselves from the world and we walk as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in these, in these last days. So I think things will just keep, I say this all the time, things will keep getting worse before they get better. They'll get better when Jesus Christ comes back. The scripture is very clear about that. They'll keep getting darker, but the darker it is, the brighter the light shines, always. And um, uh, we need to be that light. Because Jesus said that we are the light of the world and we are the salt of this, of this earth. So um, yesterday in, in Russia, there, again, if you don't follow the news, then you don't really know that much about this. But if you follow the news throughout all the United States, all the major news services, it was being reported that this is the end of the Russian government, this is the end of Putin that this is going to be civil war in Russia and the government's going to be completely overthrown because without going into the details, what was happening was huge. And, and uh, it very much, when I first heard about it, which was about one o'clock in the morning, which would have been about um, 11 o'clock in the morning in Moscow, and, but at one o'clock in the morning yesterday, uh, as I was getting ready to go to sleep, I was just looking at the and, and I saw a video where uh, President Putin was uh, making a, uh, a speech to the nation, and it was very obvious that what was happening was extremely serious, extremely dangerous, and that Russia was seemingly on the brink of, civ of, of civil war. And, uh, and all because of one guy, basically, <laughs> who has a bone to pick with everybody, but also has tons of money and has his own private military. So anyway, without going into the details, that entire thing completely fizzled out because you know, when, whenever in the history of the world, whenever something starts, like with the Civil War in the United States, if uh, South Carolina had not been joined by any other state and they had just been left out to dry, then there never would have been a Civil War. It always starts with something small. 
uh, a, a fight in a family, a fight between friends, always starts with something small, but then it snowballs and it grows and grows. So the snowball started going down the mountain, I guess, in Russia, and discovered there was no other snow to stick to it because it did not grow and grow. And the thing that was really amazing to me, because I have I've lived in Russia for more than half my life, but it was very amazing to me to see that for the first time in all the years I lived in Russia, Russia was united together as a country. With all the divisions and all the different ideas and different philosophies, because there are just as many there as there are here, uh, people were united together as a country in the time when it mattered. And because they were united, I mean, every single governor, every single leader, every single news person on TV, whatever, anybody that had a voice and anybody that had a stage came out immediately with uh, addresses to the nation or to the people where they live that we do not support this, that we support our government, we support our constitution, et cetera, et cetera. And the entire thing completely fizzled out and was completely stopped with almost no bloodshed. There was just a little bit, but it was amongst soldiers and no, no civilians died, and it, and it could have ended completely different. And, um, and, and amongst all the questions that people have, the thing that was amazing, not just to me, but throughout Russian society, people are talking about this today, is, wow, we're actually united. We didn't know that. Because it, in Russia, they had the Soviet Union, of course, and when that was dismantled and you know, fell apart, then you suddenly find yourself, you wake up the next day and you live literally in a different country. And for many, many years, I have always noticed in Russia that Russians don't understand what it means to be Russian. And Russians don't love their country in, in, in the way that God loves their country or see their country the way that God sees their country. Because it was like they were lost. They weren't really sure what this country is because it, they, they didn't grow up in that country. And I think perhaps because of the fighting, the war, and all that stuff, that over the last, literally over the last year and a half, they've suddenly been brought together. And will they stay together? I don't know if they'll stay together or not, because that's the way of countries. But in the, in the crucible, in the fire, they've, they actually came out like gold yesterday. And it was really shocking and amazing and a beautiful thing to see. Um, whatever happens next, to see that people actually were in agreement and in unity with each other about the things that are most important. Because this is what's really key. We have differences, you know, I was talking about Lutherans, Baptists, whatever. We all have differences in doctrine, um, not in the main doctrines, you know, but more, m less in doctrine and more in practice. We have differences in practices and a little bit in doctrine. But th the things that are important for salvation, the things that are important for eternal life, in these things there must be complete unity. And if we have unity in those things that are the most important, then we can not only tolerate our differences, we, we can actually uh, embrace those differences, learn from each other, and rejoice in those things. Because unity is not sameness. Unity does not mean that we are all the same. Unity means that we're all different, but we're joined together. The picture that's given in the scripture over and over again is of a body. 
and our body members are all different from one another. Even the finger, unless you're super ambidextrous, your left hand even works different than your right hand does. Everything in our body is different. And every little inch of our body is different. You know, everything about us is different. And the beauty in the human body is not in perfect symmetry. Uh, my son Steven's here, by the way. Hallelujah. And uh, uh, he's an artist, you know. And yesterday he was talking with my son-in-law about AI and art and all this stuff. And I wasn't listening, really. But I was just kept walking past and hearing what they were talking about and everything. You know, and if you, if you had artificial intelligence or computer something that didn't need a human to do it, it just could do it off a program and it could make the perfect picture. You're gonna look at that picture and you may say that it's beautiful. And then you may see some Van Gogh in a museum that really, to the untrained eye, might seem like it's just a big mess. But the more you look at that Van Gogh, you realize that's real art. That, that, that lack of symmetry and those imperfections and those differences is what makes us say, oh, that's beautiful. You know what I'm saying? Nothing in creation is perfectly symmetrical. You know, we have fake wood on these floors, right? And if you stare at them long enough, you can find that lots of these planks are exactly the same. If we had real wood floors, too expensive, but we got real wood on the walls, mahogany, by the way, and you're going to see that everything is different. And so the beauty is in that reality. So I said all that because uh, I didn't know that that was going to happen yesterday, and I had this message on my heart before that. But to, to point out that unity brings strength, and unity is able to deal with uh, sin in a way that it is eradicated quickly and with love and done with mercy. But where there's a lack of unity, then sin prospers and evil grows. And it's, it's, it's what the, the Holy Spirit is doing in our church today. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing in our families. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing between churches and amongst Christians today, that we would be joined together as one. And we can only be joined together as one, the scripture says, if we are joined to the head, because the unity comes from the head, and the head is Jesus Christ. So if I'm joined to Jesus Christ, and my brother is joined to Jesus Christ, and we have differences with one another, the Lord will draw us together anyway, because we'll realize that he made us with these differences, that he actually enjoys these differences because we have different jobs to do, because we're different people. And you'll see that at VBS. You were already seeing it if you were here yesterday for the setup of VBS, that everybody has kind of a different picture or a different idea of how they want to do it. One of the things that's cool is every shopkeeper can make their shop sort of the way they want within certain bounds. And uh, every one of the tribe leaders is going to lead their tribe uh, a little bit different. And that's going to allow the Holy Spirit to, to flow through each person. And in that freedom, that freedom is, is a good thing. And it's actual freedom when we have unity. Uh, freedom is called in the King James licentiousness uh, when we don't have unity. That's when everybody just does what they want to do, and it's a big mess, and it's chaos. And that's not freedom. That's actually slavery. So in Romans chapter 13, uh, I'm, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. I'm just going to read all these verses, and then I'm going to say a few things about them. 
It says every person is to be in subjection to the governing uh, authorities. For there is no authority except from God. So note this. There is no governing authority that is not from God. Remember that this is written to the Christians in Rome during the time when Nero, Nero had not yet gone off his rocker, but he was already in power. And within a couple of years, he's going to go off his rocker completely. But, so it wasn't written about a good government. Okay? It was written about one of the worst governments in history. And nonetheless, it's stated that every governing authority has its authority from God. So whatever you think about Russia, whatever you think about Iran, whatever you think about North Korea, there's one for you. Nonetheless, if there is a governing authority, God gave that authority. They may be misusing it, they may be doing it wrong, but the authority comes from God, okay? We're actually not correct when we believe that the authority comes from the people, okay? And every constitution in the world that's democratic says that, and it, and it does in a sense, but it comes from God through the people, okay? The authority comes from God. So there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For, and then listen to this. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. And this is actually the sword part. It's what we were talking about with the pastors. It does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, in other words, not just because you're afraid you're going to get sent to jail or killed, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake, that you would not lose your personal integrity. We're going to talk about integrity today. For the sake of your own conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Man, all, all these verses are really challenging our lifestyle, aren't they? For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, when you walk in love, you don't need to memorize the Ten Commandments, because you won't break those things anyway. Do this knowing the time that is already, the hour for you to awaken from sleep. That's revival. For now salvation is nearer to us, that's the second coming of Jesus, than when we first believed. The night is almost gone, that's hope, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So this is a very interesting passage of Scripture because on the face of it, when you first read it, and it's actually a passage of Scripture that has been used in history by unjust governments to tell people that you're breaking the Word of God if you don't submit to what we're telling you to do. But if you dig into the passage a little bit deeper and understand when it was written and to whom it was written and the kind of government they had at that time, it's actually not only speaking to us about walking in love and submitting to governing authorities, which it is saying to do that, but it's chiefly actually speaking to the ruler about what it means to, yield, to wield the sword of God, to walk with the authority that comes from God. Because it's saying to the ruler, you don't have any authority except what you got from God. You're not the president because people voted for you. You're not the president because you're the best choice. That's for sure in America. <laughs> but, but you have authority from God and you have a sword. And that sword, what is a sword? Well, the sword is specifically capital punishment and war. And then from capital punishment flows all other forms of punishment. I'm talking maybe not from a legal sense, but from the biblical sense. That the capital punishment is the first punishment that God established in the scripture. That the blood of your brother cries out against you, Cain, from the ground. And that blood must be avenged. Inter interestingly enough, in the first case of murder where only God was the judge, however, he showed mercy on Cain and did not have him put to death. So mercy triumphs over judgment. Nonetheless, the law establishes capital punishment first and all other punishments flow from that. So that is the sword. It's the power to make war, to make what you might call righteous war, to defend your nation, it's a, it, 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 every person has the right to self-defense. Uh, every nation has the right to defend itself. And so that, but, the, but what it's being said to the ruler here is that that sword comes to you from God. And just as an example of how divided we are as a nation today. Um, I heard a person, and I won't say who this person is, and it's not a person in this church, and I don't even think this person's a Christian, okay? So you don't even need to try to guess who it is. But pretty typical northern Nevada guy, okay? Intelligent, uh, has lived here all his life, uh, strong, handsome, normal northern Nevada guy, okay? And I overheard a conversation he was having by phone. It sounds like I sneak around listening to people all the time, doesn't it? <laughs> But it's not true. I was in the place I was supposed to be, and this guy was shouting by phone. He was talking loud, so there was no way not to overhear the conversation he was had by phone. And I would have completely ignored it, except what he said was like, like what I was talking about, how you take a little slide, a little sample, and look through a, a, you know, a microscope. In what he said, I thought, if people are thinking it like this all across America, then we could have some real serious problems. He was talking about the Declaration of Independence with whoever was on the other line. And he was quoting from the Declaration of Independence, and he was 
right on, he was spot on. He knew the words he was quoting. And he was talking about how when a government has reached the stage that our government has in the United States of America, then we have not only the right, but we have the responsibility to take up arms and overthrow this government. Now, maybe I was supposed to call Homeland Security and report this. I don't, I don't know if I was. Sorry, Homeland Security. I didn't do that. <laughs> it's just a guy talking on the phone. But, you know, this is, and he probably didn't know I was listening, but he was talking so loud he must have known. And, um, and, and he obviously was not shy about his opinion, is what I'm saying. And, and I know you could go to the liberal side of the aisle and you'll hear the same things. That we literally, as a nation, are not far away from division that leads to civil war. I don't want that to happen. I don't believe that's going to happen at all. I know the position of Christians, what it's supposed to be anyway, and, and uh, uh, that, that position are, uh, as citizens of the country, of course, everybody has a right to self-defense, da-da-da, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, there's something that Jesus said that we should never forget when he stood before Pilate. And Pilate was asking him if he's a king. And he said, my kingdom's not of this world. But if my kingdom was of this world, then my soldiers would take up arms right now and we would fight. But because my king, he didn't go on to say this, but this is what's implied, but because my kingdom is not of this world, my soldiers, the angels, are not receiving the command to rain down fire from heaven on you. And you remember James and John, when they wanted to call fire down from heaven on the city that rejected Jesus, and Jesus simply said to them, you do not understand what spirit you are of. The calling down of fire from heaven, that's the spirit of the world, okay? And God has given that authority to governments, has given them the, the sword. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it's 4th of July pretty soon, so it's a good time to read it. But it's an amazing document. But the, the words in the Declaration of Independence, they do cause you to think today. You know, at what point do a people have a right to reestablish a new government for, for themselves? Um, but the government that Jesus preaches is the government that's on his sh shoulders. Do you understand? Throughout history, every nation, every nation, and I remember being told this when I was a kid and thinking, oh, that could never happen to America. But throughout history, every nation has its time. When it prospers, when it declines, and when it dies. And sometimes it's reborn and... Uh, Sometimes there's a new government that's based on the old government and it keeps going. No country has a time of expiration and death because country is the land that we live on and the people that live on that land. But governments come and governments go. They prosper and they fail. But there is a government that lasts for all eternity and that's the government that's on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And if we serve him, then we don't need to fear what's going to happen in the world. Do you realize that within just a few years after Romans was written, after Hebrews was written, the entire Jewish world collapsed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The Jews were scattered to the four corners of the earth. And they never returned to that homeland and had a government in that homeland until 1948 and not to Jerusalem until 1967. So it was literally 
1,900 years that they were scattered, but Jesus still brought them back because that's what his word said, and his government never fails. So if we serve Jesus, then we don't need to fear anything, and we don't need to take up arms, and we don't need to overthrow the government or try to get involved in some kind of uh, unrest or demanding something that we have no right to do, and yet at the same time, we don't need to be compliant and go along with everything that's in the world. So how do you do that? Well, there's perfect examples in the Bible. I mean, you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're in Babylon, and all they're supposed to do is bow down when they hear the music playing. They're at the gigantic disco where they're supposed to worship the big golden thing, and, you know, it's really no big deal. Just bow down, guys. But they won't bow down. They refuse to bow down when the music plays. And so they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And they say, our God is able to save us from this furnace. But if he doesn't want to, if he chooses to let us die in it, we still ain't going to bow down to your golden altar. We are good citizens. We pay our taxes. We work in the government. All these Hebrews were really important for the government of Babylon because they were all smart. They were all good kids. And, and we'll, we will serve you. We will build homes here. We will be good citizens here. But we have our God, and we will not bow down to your God. Well, that wasn't going to be tolerated by Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone has to be the same because that's what Nebuchadnezzar thought unity was. Well, you know the story that God saved them out of that fiery furnace, and it became a testimony to Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar eventually, I believe, actually gave his heart to the Lord because he confessed the Lord as the only God. I believe we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of God someday. And then you have Daniel. I mean, what's he commanded not to do? Not to pray, right? That's it. You know, he can pray, you know, you can pray silently. He can pray by himself, but he can't go up into that room and pray like he does every day. And he's been doing this all his life. And so in the morning, when it's time to go pray, he just goes and prays. He knows he's going to get in trouble, but he's not putting on a show for everybody. This is what he always does. He always goes to church. He always worships God. So he's not going to change his life just because that's what the commandment says to do. None of these people took up arms. None of these people tried to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. But all of these people stood so strongly that it brought Nebuchadnezzar to his knees before God. And it eventually brought the end of the Babylonian Empire because they refused to bow down. In their hearts, they had this strength. You know what Jesus said? Remember, uh, uh, he asked his disciples before he's going to the cross if, any of you, if you have a sword. And Peter said, uh, I've, got, I've got two swords here. And Jesus says, it's enough. And we don't really know because that's how the, the scripture is written, exactly the uh, uh, inflection of Jesus' voice there. Was he saying, enough! You don't need these swords. Put those swords away. Or was he saying, well, two swords is enough because all you guys really need to do with them is shave and cut up your food or whatever you're going to be doing. We're not going to stage a, a, a mutiny here, uh, you know, an armed mutiny. Two swords, whatever you think Jesus meant by that, Two swords is not going to be enough to overthrow the whole Roman cohort, right? So Jesus was saying, you know, weren't, my plan here is not to kill them. My plan is to lay down my life for the salvation of the world. And then you remember how Peter cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus put his ear back on and healed him. 
And Jesus said these words, He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. And, and that's a maxim. That's the truth. If you live by the sword, then you shall die by the sword. And we have an armor of light, it says here in the scripture. We have the sword of the spirit. He says to put on this armor, put on this armor of love, because there's nothing more powerful on this earth than walking in love. It's the most powerful weapon that anyone could have. And when we walk in that love and we walk in that unity, then we walk in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, there are governing authorities and they bear the sword. Throughout history, there have been governing authorities that bear the sword from God, and yet they have become, mark this word because I'm going to talk about it more here with some other scriptures, they have become obsolete. Okay? They bear the sword, but they bear it wrongly. They bear it unjustly. They do not do what God has called them to do. Notice what the scripture says here. It says that the governing authority is a cause of fear to those who do evil. And if you do good, you do not need to be afraid of the governing authority. Because the governing authority encourages good deeds and punishes evil deeds. Notice what it says. If you read, not really between the lines, but read deeper, you'll hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking to these Christians in Rome. And you can hear this in America today. In America today, the governing authority actually causes fear to those who want to do good. If you want to do evil, there's no fear in it. In, in many places throughout this nation, and it's getting more and more and more, evil deeds are encouraged. What, what's an evil deed? Those things which go against the Ten Commandments. Is, is abortion being encouraged by our government no matter what the Supreme Court decided? Yes, it's being encouraged. Are they trying to pass laws that will uh, encode abortion no matter what the Supreme Court says? Yes, that's what they're trying to do. Did they do that with uh, so-called gay marriage? I hate how all these words get, good words get appropriated for evil, but yes, that's what they did. Not only was there a Supreme Court decision, now it's encoded into law. So evil deeds are actually being encouraged, and good deeds, good behavior, uh, make you afraid that you'll get in trouble. Evil behavior is praised, and good is, is, uh, is punished. Now nobody's going to say evil behavior is praised and good is being punished, because as the scripture says, they call evil good, and they call good evil. So the wrath is being poured out on those who do good. Um, I'm not saying what I'm going to say right now. I have to be careful of these things. I'm not saying what I'm going to say right now because you need to know how I personally voted in the last election or the election before or will vote in the next election. That's none of your business, and it's none of my business who you vote for. Okay? I'm not saying because we have some position as a church who should you vote for or anything like that. But I want to tell you what's happening to President Trump, whether you call him former or current, I don't have different opinions, but what's happening to President Trump right now is absolutely unprecedented in the history of this nation. And it should never happen, okay? It, I mean, I can see it happening if he was being convicted of murder 
or you know some capital crime, but he has not done done anything, even slightly comparing to to a, a reason to be prosecuted. And the prosecution of presidents is not something that happens in the United States. It's something that happens in what you call banana republics. Okay, it happens all over the world, but that doesn't happen here. But it is happening here, right? I don't know what the end of it's going to be. We should pray that the end of it is that it stopped. But it doesn't look like anybody's planning on stopping it. Everybody knows, if you really think about it, that all of this boils down to private ambitions of very small-minded people. And yet it's happening in our nation. So we have a nation where wrath is literally being poured out on those who do good. And, and, and it, it, I'm not saying it should scare us in a bad sense, but it should. How can we pray for our nation if we can't be honest about it? I mean, that's just what's happening. We have a nation today where taxes, customs, you know what customs are? That's, you know, import, export, all that stuff. Taxes, customs, fear, and honor are all being wasted and squandered. These are, these are words from the scripture here. That we make investments with no return. Uh, not that long ago, and I guess I can mention him, he's a big public figure. I heard one of Tucker Carlson's new things, and he said, just drive 500 miles from your home. Just take the time this summer to drive 500 miles from your home and pay attention to the infrastructure and the decay of the infrastructure in our nation. Well, we did that this week. We went on a little mini camping trip. It wasn't 500 miles, but it was enough to say, wow. I mean, it's just, wow. We went up to the, uh, I know I'm just talking this morning, but we went up to the, the lava national monument, the lava tubes, all that, and we had, we had a blast when you went underground. But everybody kept telling me, this is a great place to go camping. You've got to come up here and go camping. I get up there, the entire forest is burned to a crisp. I mean, there are no trees at that national forest. And they were sparse trees. And I'm looking, why didn't they just get a bulldozer in here when the fire was starting and make a ditch? They could have stopped. I mean, it's not like a thick forest. It's very, I don't know the history of it. I'm not blaming anybody. But it's just, it's just sad how the infrastructure you know, how you go across a straight line and all of a sudden pothole after pothole. Praise the Lord in Nevada, we actually have pretty decent roads. But, you know, we pay taxes, we pay custom. You know what import-export was designed for? And everyone knows this, but income taxes was unconstitutional until they passed an amendment to make it constitutional. But import and export was divine, the custom is designed to make a nation prosperous so that you have more jobs in the nation. It's not designed to export all the jobs to some other country. I mean, you can blame China, we can blame whoever we want to blame, but we're the ones that sent all the jobs over there. You know, we're the ones that exploit slave labor around the world, thinking that makes us rich, and it just comes back to haunt us. So we get in a place where you can't even buy a new car. Um, when our friends were here from uh, Kansas City, we were driving around in our Sienna, that Toyota Sienna, that old Toyota Sienna. He goes, man, these things are really roomy. This is nice. And he started looking online. He was thinking, I want to get one of these. He started looking at new Siennas. Six-month waiting list. I don't know what it's like now in Missouri, but it was a six-month waiting list for a Toyota Sienna, one of the most popular cars ever produced. Why? Because we can't make chips anymore. And all our cars are totally dependent on chips now, you know, because that's 
you know, we're so fancy, and so we're stuck with this chip thing. But all these things I'm talking about, everybody knows about this stuff. But I just want you to see it in the light of the scripture, what the scripture is saying. That the government has come to a place in the United States, just as it was coming to the place in Romans, where it is becoming obsolete in the eyes of God. Because it no longer functions the way that God called it to function. So does the government then, when it bears that sword, does it exercise that sword in a way to wage war righteously? Does it punish criminals righteously? Well, I believe in Yerington we have a great DA, and we do, but even a DA is limited by laws and can't go beyond what the laws tell uh, you ha has to be done. And so every government, and you can judge for yourself if America's in this place, every government throughout history comes to a place where they've been bearing this sword for a long time, and they've done it righteously in the past, and they've done it in a way that brings prosperity and blessing to people in the past, but as time goes by, their, their arms get so weak, they get so old, that they no longer bear the sword in a righteous manner. And these are the signs of this. Everyone's in debt. Are we in debt as a nation today? Oh boy, you can't even count those numbers. I mean, since you're even talking about it, everybody knows we're in debt. So every child is born with like tens of thousands of dollars of debt already as a nation. I mean, we are so in debt, like no nation has ever been in debt before. And yet it says that the government exists so that people won't have to be in debt. Owe nothing to anyone except to love them. Do we have love in our nation? We have no love. And here's the big one, I think. You come down to the end of this. Do we not live in a nation just like Rome became at its end, where we live in the darkness of a night of carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, and sensuality. That's the list here. That's our country today. People are so drugged up, they don't even, they can't even think straight anymore. They can't manufacture anything. They can't do anything. The pictures are horrendous. I can't even watch the videos, the things they show on the news of what's going on this month around our nation's capital. But it's biblically called carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, and sensuality. It's not something new. It was happening in Rome also. But we could study the end of Rome and realize that that's where we are. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually the thing of hope. Because it says here, that means the night is almost over. The night is almost spent and the day is coming. So you Christians, wake up, stop acting like you live in the night, and live in the day. This is the time of the day. So now, go with me over to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 21. Last week I talked about uh, David and how he wept over the loss of his son Absalom for Father's Day. And I just want to go a little bit more into that story of David. 2 Samuel chapter 21, and I might have mentioned some of this, but I'm, you're just going to hear it again if I did. 2 Samuel chapter 21, and I want to read verses 15 through 22, okay? 2 Samuel 21, 15 through 22. It says, Now when the Philistines were at war with Israel, David went down and his servants with him. 
And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbi Binab, who was among the descendants of the giant, so this is actually the son of Goliath, as I understand this, perhaps his grandson, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight. This Ishbi Binab was girded with a new sword. He has new, Ishbi Binab has a new sword. It's a new governing authority. It's something new that's come along. And he intended to kill David to take revenge for Goliath. But Abishai, the son of Zuriah, helped him, helped David, and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. You know what they're saying to him? David, you are obsolete. You are an old man now, and you cannot fight like you used to fight. And his, his only profession in life, the thing he's always loved, is to fight. That's what he's actually good at, and he can't do it anymore. So they said, you're not going to go out to battle with us anymore. Because if you die, then our government dies. Our nation is gone. And that is the light, the lamp of Israel. And so we're not going to let you go out to battle anymore. And so it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob, then Sibekai the Hushathite struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. And there was war with the Philistines again at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jerogorogim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite. But it doesn't actually mean he killed Goliath, but the other son of his. The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There was war at Gath again, that's Philistine, where there was a man of great stature, the six-fingered man, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. 24 in number, and he also had been born to the giant. So another son of Goliath. So Goliath's got all these sons, and they're all giants. One of them's got 24 digits, and, and they're out to get David. Why? To take revenge for what happened to Goliath. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. So David's nephew struck, struck him down. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Actually, Goliath fell by the hand of David, but David is no longer able to bear the sword that God had given him. And if you read on, things just go south for David after that, and he, God does some good things there too, but gets pretty bad, and he, he wanes, and he dies, and his kingdom is almost completely destroyed because Nobody wants Solomon to be king except for God. But God saves it all in the end. Everything is saved in the end, and Solomon becomes king, and the division, the civil war, is staved off for another generation. But only a generation. And after Solomon dies, the civil war comes because the people were not united. The government had become obsolete. For David, this was a really difficult time. If you read the chapters that come before this, you read about the rebellion and the death of Absalom. You read about Joab's treachery and how Joab, the commander-in-chief over all the armies, uh, so desires to remain in power that he will disobey the words of David and he will commit murder behind the back of David. Joab is actually the one who killed Absalom. And you read about how God comes along and says, today is payday and you've got to pay for the sins of your past. 
God requires justice for a people called the Gibeonites, okay? You can read the whole book to find out all this story, but Saul had mistreated the Gibeonites. Not David, but Saul. But a lot of times we think that those things don't catch up to nations, but they do catch up to nations. There's a principle in the scripture that there's a difference between national repentance and personal repentance. And I can show this to you really well with the story of the king of Judah whose name was Manasseh, because Manasseh was the absolute worst king of all. This guy is so wicked. He's so perverse. He's so evil. And one of the things that he did is he had set up this, this wicked, evil contraption, idol thing. And you can, you can look this stuff up and read about it, where they would burn their babies alive in feeding it to this idol thing, okay? And, and they did this right outside of Jerusalem. And, and later that land will be cursed because of that. And and yet they would burn their babies alive. No different than abortion, by the way. And they would burn those babies alive. And when later God comes to punish Manasseh, Manasseh actually repents. And he turns back to God. And he changes everything in his life and in his kingdom. And there's revival in the land. The worst king ends up being okay at the end. And we'll meet Manasseh in the kingdom of God. And yet later God says that I will not forgive the sin of Manasseh that these children were, were killed and offered up as sacrifice. And it's one of the reasons that they had to go into captivity was for the sin of Manasseh. So God forgave the sin of the man Manasseh. Do you understand? His private repentance meant something. He was saved. But God did not say that means the nation doesn't have to pay for this. As a nation, you will pay for what you've done because God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So there was private repentance for Manasseh, but the national repentance still had to be paid for. And so this happens in the story of David right before what we just read. And God requires justice for the Gibeonites. And God requires that David ask the Gibeonites what they want in payment. And the Gibeonites demand, they say, we don't want anything except we want seven sons of the man that did this to us. We want them to be hanged by the neck. So seven sons of Saul had to be killed in order to pay for the sin of the nation. And that was a, a merciful punishment, by the way, because they could have asked for more. Well, now David has a problem. Because one of the sons of Saul is a guy named Mephibosheth. And when I say son, it can relate to grandsons also. And Mephibosheth, if you remember, he's a crippled guy. And David's already made a covenant with him that he will protect Mephibosheth all his life. So Mephibosheth is out. He can't offer up Mephibosheth. He has to find seven other sons of Saul. And so he gets two sons of a woman named Rizpah and five sons of a woman named Merah. Now, but it's really interesting. It take, takes time to draw this all out of the story, but just listen. So Rizpah, she is Saul's concubine. If you don't know what a concubine is, look it up. They're, they're living together, but they're not married. Okay? She's Saul's concubine. And kings had these concubines, right? And there's a whole scandal around her in Scripture. And I won't go into the details of this, but because of this scandal that happens around Rizpah, a guy named Abner, 
who's the, the captain of the host for Saul. He's the main, you know, main general for Saul. Abner, because of the scandal around Rizpah, actually begins to turn against Saul and gives an oath that I swear that I will see David be king over Israel. It was a huge turning point in the life of David. So David had remained faithful to Rizpah and her two sons. They had not been punished. They were prospering in Israel, and David had a reason for them to prosper. The five sons of Merob even more so, because Merob, Merah is actually, was supposed to be the wife of David. She was the woman before Michael, as she's called. The she's the daughter of Saul, and she was supposed to be given to David in marriage, but Saul cheated David out of Merah. He cheated everybody out of everything. And so this is a woman that David had in his youth loved, you know, and had every reason to stand up for her. But beyond that, even more so, through her marriage, her children, these five sons, they are the grandchildren of a guy named, and they're all in these stories here, a guy named Barzillai. And if you read these stories, Barzillai is this really old man who has supported David all his life. He's one of David's most trusted counselors. And after the rebellion with Absalom, when David's going back to Jerusalem, he says, Barzillai, you go with me. I need you in the court. And Barzillai says, I'm being honest with you, David. I can hardly walk. I'm so old. And he said, I'll, I'll go across the river with you, but then please let me go home and die with my people. I, I just can't serve you anymore. I'm too old, okay? And so... David, can you imagine, has to take five grandchildren of one of his best friends and two children of this other woman who was instrumental in him becoming king. And he has to give those seven kids up. They're already adult kids, you know. And they have to be hanged. And God requires this because of the sin of Saul. What am I saying? David's worn out. David has been through so much. He's worn out, and he can no longer fight. He's become obsolete. And his own people say to him, go home. Now go with me to Hebrews 8, verse 13. And if you've been going through Hebrews, we talked about this then. Hebrews 8, verse 13. I'm almost done. Hebrews 8, verse 13. It says, uh, when God says a new covenant, Hebrews 8, verse 13, it's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. When God says a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. Why? Because all authority comes from God. So when God said a new covenant, that means the old covenant is obsolete because God says a new covenant. The old covenant is obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Just mark those words. They're very spiritual. Whatever is becoming obsolete, David was becoming obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to die, ready to disappear. Now go with me over to Revelation. And I'm going to bring it all the way to what I really wanted to say to you today. <laughs> what about the church? Well, we have seven letters to the churches. 
and five of them are warnings. Only two of these seven churches get off without a spanking, okay? Five of these local churches get a really severe spanking from the Lord because he's warning them, you are becoming obsolete. How does a church become obsolete? A church is obsolete when that church, that local church, does not, is not working to fulfill the Great Commission. If, if we are not making disciples of these kids that come to VBS, we're just entertaining them, then we're becoming obsolete. If we are not laying hands on the sick to see them recover, then we are becoming obsolete. Because these are the things in the Great Commission. If we are not taking the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth, then we're becoming obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is getting ready to die. And just like nations, churches throughout history have always had a time period. And very few churches, and I'm talking about local churches, can, none of these churches are there, by the way. 98% of Turkey is Muslim today. And these are all in Turkey. It was, it's Turkey today. Every church throughout history, if it does not, is not renewed and is not revived, then it becomes obsolete. It grows old, and eventually it disappears. And that cannot happen to Yerington Vineyard Fellowship. Maybe it's going to happen someday, but it's not going to happen on my watch. <laughs> and it can't happen now because we are absolutely necessary to this community. Do you know, I guess it's okay to say this, when we had lunch with Michelle that's going to be starting the Crisis Pregnancy Center here. What a neat lady. I mean, she's really a woman of faith. And just very, very humble and quiet spirit, but very strong on the inside. I mean, you couldn't work in that, that, that uh, ministry uh, for all the years she's worked in it without having that, that strength on the inside. I didn't know this until we had lunch. She said, one of the things that I wanted to tell you is, I visited your church one Sunday. Well, I knew she visited our church one Sunday and had come with one of her grandkids, I think. Well, that Sunday that she came, okay, uh, I knew she was going to be coming because she had told me she was going to be coming. And we were really busy that week, and I actually forgot that she was going to be coming that Sunday. And I thought, oh, I should introduce her. Uh, but I had never met her before, so I didn't even know what she looked like. And, you know, she didn't even come up to me that Sunday. She didn't introduce herself or anything. And just as she was leaving, walking out that back door, she told me who she was. And I was like, oh, man, I, I knew you were coming, but I didn't know you were here. I should have introduced. No, that's okay. I just wanted to visit the church and everything. And she leaves. Well, when we had lunch with her, she said, uh, I had just really been praying about where God, when we moved to Yarrington, where my local church is going to be, which church I'm supposed to go to. And she said, I visited all the churches, and I just really believe the Holy Spirit told me that this is home for me at Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship. And then I went and talked to my pastor in Reno, who is a Nazarene church, and uh, the pastor asked, what church is it? She said, Yarrington Vineyard. And he said, that's where you're supposed to go. That's a great church. I don't know why, how he knows that or why he thinks that, but that's what he said to her. And you know what I was so impressed by is that God's still doing something here because that had nothing to do with me being a great pastor who just welcomed her or anything like that or introducing her to people that was just the presence of the holy spirit in this place and that should give us hope 
that the night is, is on its way out and the day is coming, but it should not make us overconfident and think that these things could not happen to us because they can. Listen to what it says about Sardis. It's chapter 3 in verse 1, uh, the church in Sardis. It says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. I mean, could that not be said about Yarrington Vineyard if we're not careful? Oh, you have a great name, the Nazarene pastor in Reno even knows who you are. Somebody knows Tom Chisholm or somebody used to love Gene Chisholm or something like that. You have a great name. Or Dave, don't want to leave Dave out. He's my friend. <laughs> you have a great name, uh, and the name says you're alive. The name you've got written out there on the, on the sign says you're alive, but you, you are actually dead. Jesus says you're dead. And of course, he doesn't mean you're completely dead or he wouldn't be writing this. He means you are dying. You're obsolete. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you do have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. I hope the humor here is not lost on you. It's purposeful in Scripture, whether you like it or not. Some things in Scripture are almost crude. You're so old, you're so obsolete that you have incontinency. You have a few people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And you know there's something else in there, that no matter what your church is doing, you're still privately, personally responsible before God for your own private and personal revival. Because even in a bad church, you can still be a good Christian. But we don't want to be a bad church. I don't want it to be said to us that we are, have deeds and name only, but we actually need adult pampers already. We're so obsolete. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, I'm not going to read these, but uh, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus that you've left your first love. You're so old, you've lost the passion. You've lost the romance. You've lost the desire to be in love with Jesus. And then to the Laodiceans in chapter 3, of course, verse 17, uh, he says that, uh, you know, you, you say you're rich, but you're poor. There's... Uh, you say you're healthy and strong, but you're weak and you're sick and you're dying. You're so old that you've got dementia. You say something about yourself that's not true. You are living in the past. You remember what used to be. But I'm telling you today, you're sick, you're dead, and you're dying. So there's this dichotomy, this difference between what the churches say about themselves and what Jesus says about them, how he sees them. They have deeds in name only. But Jesus says you're dead. They say they are this, but this is who you actually are. And we need to hear Jesus. We need to see ourselves in the mirror of God's word because this is where this real integrity comes, that we are on the outside who we say we are on the inside. There cannot be a difference between who we say we are and who we actually are before Jesus. So yesterday I was at... Uh, well, 
Tanya and Frank and I were all at Sasha's uh, riding camp. And on the last day of riding camp, they put on a, a show on horses. And this year, it was, it, was, it was so good, you would have cheered for it at the rodeo. They were, they were awesome. I mean, it was genuinely really good. And um, uh, as a part of the, the show, um, uh, they had this, this thing where uh, there was like a background poem that goes with it. And, and uh, they had different words that they were supposed to get with the horse and carry them around, and then they put them up. It was just a part of the show. One of the words was integrity. And when the rider came up and got the little cloud that had integrity in it, and then they put it in the sky in this mural, uh, had integrity in it. In the words of the, the poem, it was said something to this effect anyway. I'm not quoting exactly, maybe, but the girls learn integrity, and that integrity means you always do what you say you're going to do. That you are who you say you are, actually. Integrity. And there's a verse I want to end with in Job. And it's in chapter 27. You can look it up if you want or just listen. In Job chapter 27, where Job says, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has embittered my soul. I mean, Job has a bone to pick with God because things are going really hard for him. It seems to him that God's not answering his prayers at all. That's not actually true, as we find out at the end, but it seems like that to him. He says in verse 3, For as long as life is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you right. He's talking to his friends who say that he's a bad guy. He said, I'm not going to agree with you. I'm not going to bow down to your idols. I'm not going to compromise on this. Until I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. Job said to his wife in the beginning of the story when she said, just curse God and die. He said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. God can kill me, but I'm not going to ever say anything against him because I'm a man of integrity. And what I say, that's who I actually am. Now, that's a high standard to attain to. And none of us have attained to that in our lives. But Jesus has. And in Christ, we have that integrity that only Christ himself has. And I believe that God is calling us in this place. I started out by describing the nation, the world we live in. No, the nation is not a nation of integrity today. We're not a place of integrity. We're a place of division. We're a place of strife. We have all this. But in this darkness, should we not be shining even brighter? Should we not stand out as people of integrity? That what we say we are, that's who we actually are and what we actually do. And we have opportunities, like VBS starting today, to prove that, to be that. You know, I'm excited. I always get, I, I always get, when we first started talking about VBS, I'm like, oh, VBS again, it's hot, and it's a lot of work and everything and stuff. But when we finally get down to it, or to any of these kind of projects, I get really excited about it because I know the Holy Spirit is here. 
and just it's a, it's a revival to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit, to be in the presence of worship, and to do that together with kids for all of these days together. It's going to be a lot of fun. But we just have this opportunity to be revived. Let's have revival in our church this week. And I mean revival where we just get back to the message, get back to who God has called us to be, to fulfill the Great Commission, to preach the gospel, and to take it to these little children that God's going to bring here. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity of this VBS, Lord, for this opportunity to join together in unity. Lord, as different as we may be from each other, that you would draw us together. And I just pray, Lord, that we would be a church of integrity, that we would be a church who we are in reality who we say that we are, Lord, and that we would proclaim and confess your word as chief among us, that we would follow after your word, for by your word you have created us and you have set us apart unto you, Lord. And I pray that we would uh, attain... Um, the, the goal, Lord, we have not attained it yet, but that we would press forward after this high calling of God in Christ Jesus, and we would just follow with all of our hearts after you, Jesus, and just desire to be like you, Lord. Open up ways and paths for us to be able to reach into the hearts of these children and to each other and minister to each other this week, Lord. And I just pray that your name and your glory would be magnified in this place. I pray that perhaps, Lord, by your will, that this could be true, that there are little things like what's happening here in Yarrington today, that there are little things like this happening in communities all across America, Lord, and that the church in America would be revived, Lord. I don't know what's going to happen to Washington. I don't know if anybody's going to drain the swamp. I don't know about any of that stuff, and I'm not sure I even care about it anymore, Lord. I just want to see your name glorified. I want to see the gospel preached. I want to see... Father, that we would get back to the real politic, the politics of the kingdom of God, and that we would support the government that's on your shoulders, Lord, and that we would go forth as your servants and we would fulfill that great commission in preaching the gospel to every person, uh, to the very ends of Alaska and around the world, Lord, that we would take your, your word and your gospel. And I thank you for that today, this day, in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvineyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.